You are listening to the Enormo Cast. If there's one thing that has been relentlessly beat into your climbing psyche, it's that off with climbing is heinous. The worst. Only the realm of the truly sadomasochistic. Don't even try it, you wimps. Because it's just not for you. And yet the psychos at Black Dot... (coughs) And yet the psychos at Black Diamond have decided to up the ante. Go all in. Call your bluff. Use whatever gambling metaphor you want here because I'm just riffing. But anyway, those miscreant engineers have really done it this time with the number 7 and number 8 Camelots. Yep, the number 21 Camelot was a ruse. A cunning attempt to trick you. But the number 7 and number 8 are no joke. They are the biggest, baddest cams on the planet featuring much of the pure dreaminess of the C4 line, with added beef where needed, and of course the trigger keeper for slinging them like a closed fist ready for the old one-two uppercut. So if like most off-with aficionados, you've been forced into a pant-loading run for the anchors above a tipped-out six, go check out Black Diamond's new large and in-charge number seven and number eight at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop. You know, once this stay-at-home thing lightens up a little bit. In this time of pestilence, do you want to reach out to your friends, loved ones, and climbing partners with more than an anxious DM sent while slurping a soggy bowl of Captain Crunch at 2 a.m.? Then why don't you hit up friend of the show, Peter W. Gilroy, and send those socially distanced friends a climbing or mountain-inspired piece of handcrafted jewelry, or maybe one of his famous titanium-tricked-out trucker caps. Yes, titanium on a hat, people. Unique jewelry, hats, money clips, belt buckles, and more amazing accessories can be had with a discount and the bonus of supporting the EnormaCast. So why don't you cheer up your pals with a nice surprise that won't glitch and freeze in the middle like an annoying Zoom conversation and go to PeterWGilroy.com or Splitter-Designs.com to check out the wares of a great artist and also a climber just like you. And enter Enormo at checkout for the hookup. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it's it out. Out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma Cast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is May 15th, about 10.30 a.m., and this is episode 198 of the Enorma Cast, a conversation with British alpinist Tom Livingston. That's right, another British Tom on the podcast. They know each other. 
I think everyone who climbs in the UK pretty much knows each other. The place is like about as big as Delaware, right? Anyway, as long as I've got a climber from the UK on the show, I want to give a quick shout out to the folks at Third Rock, which is a sustainable climbing and yoga and active wear company over in the UK. And uh, they sent me some pants or as they say on their website, trousers. Love it. Trousers. Anyway, they sent me some trousers and they love the show. And I just thought I'd give them a shout out. Super nice pants. They fit me right out of the bag, which is unusual in my skinny little ass order something online. So that was super cool. I'm not sure exactly how you might get them in the States, but I suspect we'll have a bunch of UK listeners for this one since it's a hometown hero. Yeah, I sent uh, one of the hardest cracks I've ever climbed in these pants just before the lockdown, just before the shutdown. How's that for an endorsement? It was all the pants. Had nothing to do with training or climbing ability or anything else. The pants got me to the anchors. Thanks, pants. Sustainable policies over there. Small company. Climbers. All my favorite things here at the Enormacast. And even though the shutdown has made them less useful, I do like pants. I still like pants. All right, when this uh, stay-at-home thing started up, a lot of people were like, Caloose, how are you going to do this? You do the face-to-face interviews, 197 so far face-to-face interviews, and another one today. Well, luckily, I busted my ass back in February and January, and I got a whole bunch piled up like cordwood outside in my shed. And uh, I just keep picking wood off of that pile and throwing it out there on the fire that is the Enormacast. Luckily, I still have a couple more, in fact. Um, and we'll see what happens in uh, another month and a half when I have to start finding someone to talk to again. And one of the cool things is these are little blissful views of pre-COVID-19 world. Remember that world some 67, 68 days ago? We were just looking forward to spring, to the ice melting, feeling great about almost everything. Well, Anyhow, so that, that's, that's what I'm providing for you guys, a little glimpse back into the past. I got this one down in Ure at the Ice Festival. We went down, we, the entourage and I, went down for just one evening and a morning, mostly for me to get uh, this interview with Tom, actually. He was in town for the Ice Fest, so when uh, folks from across the pond come over, I, I try my best to get them on the show to give you guys a little bit of a variety. And I went down there, partied all night, as we do, as the entourage does, and then got up in the morning and hooked up with Tom. Well, Tom partied all night, too. So, yeah, this one was done in a bit of a haze of uh, post-Ure dance party late night shenanigans for both of us. Riding a little, little hungover on this one. I don't know if you can tell. Maybe I shouldn't have tipped my hand on that. But anyway, nice conversation, and Tom popped onto my radar because Tom and two other partners finally climbed Latok 1 from the north side, completing much of what Michael Kennedy, Jim Donini, Jeff Lowe, and George Lowe started and almost finished on the north ridge of Latok. So that's when I first heard of Tom, and he's also a fan of the show. We bantered back and forth on social media, so it was great to sit down. Super fun guy, super nice guy, and really tough guy. A right wad, if you will. And we did. So let's get to it. A little glimpse of the halcyon days before the shutdown, 
a bright morning in Ure, Colorado. Maybe a little too bright for our taste, actually. Tom Livingston, we presume. Yeah, actually, I just interviewed uh, Tom Randall, right? One of your uh, yeah, yeah. one of your compatriots. Represent. Yeah, yeah, and he asked me to ask you on a scale of one to ten how posh you think you are. <laughs> <laughs> I knew this was going to come out. I knew this was going to come out. <laughs> I would say right from the start, I'm not posh. Okay, not posh. I don't even really know what that means in the context of what you guys. So basically, in yeah, in the UK, most of the climbing um, and most of the community live in the north of the okay. country. Yeah. So like North Wales or North England. Right. And so they all speak like northerners, which, you know, is just a bit of a twang, a bit more of a, an accent. And just because I'm from the south, I speak more clearly <laughs> the queen's english or whatever and so everyone immediately goes oh right you must be posh you, you must be wealthy or something right, right, like that right. which is completely untrue okay. and just i felt as though it was some taking of the piss that needed For to sure. be done and if yeah. you guys i mean i know the whole thing there is very regional like which storied area you're from yeah there's the rivalries and, oh totally yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but For you're sure. based in wales now right? yes yeah, so i'm yeah. based in north wales which okay. is amazing for rock climbing there's right. really really good scene there as well but that's kind of funny that Tom Randall like said, "Well, how posh am I?" Because he used to work in London or something, right? Like earning earning his millions, and uh, I think he's got a Porsche now, like a fancy car. So yeah, I'm like a total okay. dirtbag, and right, he's right. I'm pretty sure he's doing okay. okay. Well, I'll send this back over to him for the retort <laughs> exactly. on the yeah. on on another show at some point. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that that's awesome. I I figured it was no big deal. Uh, to, to bring <laughs> it's this good. Up. It's it's like proper banter. There's yeah, like yeah. a lot of abuse going yeah. backwards and forwards. And, yeah, I bet, and yeah. I bet, like in Wales, yeah, it's probably pretty tough. Like scent game over yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a little bit of a recent fascination with the Wales climbing scene. Nice. Uh, my friend Andrew Bishretto would do another podcast with the Runout. He got invited over there and spent some time. Uh, DMM had him over and uh, yeah. got like low to the scene and came back and told me about it. We did a podcast about it. But, uh, you know, for another perspective, let's start there. Let's talk about the whale scene. Why, you know, I, you're from the south of England, but I, that's not a climbing mecca by any means, right? Yeah, that's right. Not much going on down no. there. Um, so obviously relocated to that place to be, you know, in, in, in the scene. But why whales and specifically versus another area like a Sheffield scene or something like that? Well, one of the best things about UK climbing is that it's all about trad and it's predominantly all about trad, I should say. And it's predominantly all about um, mountain rock or about sea cliff climbing, something that's pretty unique to the UK. Um, so North Wales has got an abundance of amazing sea cliff climbing and it's got this uh, great mountain rock um, lots and lots of track climbing. Of course, there's really good like bouldering and sport climbing as well. If you're a climber in the UK, you're going to basically live in Sheffield or North Wales, right. kind of, broadly speaking. Sheffield's great, but it's only got the grit stone, the grit, which is all right. It's not that good, though. <laughs> and it's got a tiny bit of like kind of okay limestone, kind of rubbish limestone. 
Whereas Wales has got these great mountains, it's got the sea cliffs, it's got like big beaches and stuff like that. So Wales is, feels like more of a rugged and more of a wild place. And uh, definitely if you're into like pulling hard moves and techno and like bouldering, then Sheffield is great. But Wales seems to have more of a, like a beating heart and like right. much more of a wild scene for much more different types of rock as well. And and I think uh, it feels like traditionally, historically, that's been the same too. I mean, it hasn't a lot of like, you know, when uh, we reference like here in the States, you know, Chenard wrote this manifesto about taking Yosemite to the Great Peak, the Great Ranges. Yeah, yeah. And it, it felt like there was some level of that, like of the climbers coming out of Wales in, in the past as well. Like yeah, going to sure. Europe and yeah. into the Alps and, and yeah. being kind of the hard chargers in the bigger peaks. Yeah, exactly. There's been yeah, like a big um history of climbers coming from Wales and uh, going on to much bigger things. As I said, it's like a great sort of stomping ground with all these different types of rock and um loads and loads of good mountains as well. So tiny on a world scale, but you can quickly get your fix of like scrambling up amazing ridges or um linking together loads and loads of peaks which is yeah plenty of challenge there to be had which so, is cool so as a climber uh we we won't go all the way back to your origin story because you claim that it's not that interesting so um but as a climber what do you think in your personality or your youth or whatever drew you that way versus Versus, like you just said, the the hard pulling techno scene somewhere else. I definitely think it's that childhood of growing up and outside. We never had a TV just for random reasons. I guess my folks weren't interested in it. And so it was always just being outside, messing around and playing and stuff like that. So for me being in wales it felt really natural and great fun and i also went to uni there i went to bangor university mm -hmm. which again has got a lot of history a lot of strong climbers have, have been there and so after three years of uh, being at uni i went away and sort of traveled a bit and then thought well if i'm going to be based in the uk north wales seems to be pretty awesome so that's kind of why i came back but also there's this um just like psych about being outside about being in the mountains as right. well these big beaches as i said so some occasional good surf and stuff like that so yeah it's just like this natural uh big playground really yeah so tell me a little bit about your evolution then to um to like i just said like traveling out into into bigger and bigger stuff and then you know finally into the karakoram and the himalayas and that sort of thing can you talk a little bit about who you were as a climber initially and, and what, you know, steps or what kind of uh, the evolution to the big mountains was. Because that's always kind of interesting to me because it, I didn't make it. I okay. had designs yeah. on it. I mean, I climbed. I, I mean, that that to me was climbing as well. Like you learn how to rock climb, but you also learn how to mountain climb and yeah. you ice climb. And, and, and there was some point, I think uh, I climbed a bit in New Zealand actually on those peaks and then. Uh, I think maybe moving to Southern California might have like put the end yeah. to it and like going to Yosemite. Fun. It's just yeah. all type one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it yeah. really does. All these trips away just make you appreciate <laughs> rock climbing and just like being in the sunshine. Yeah. Yeah, pulling hard moves and you're like, oh, well, yeah. this is good. Yeah. I'm going to do this more. But yeah. The, yeah, the question I always have is like where, you know, A, that drive does, but also in a lot of ways an audacity to 
to, you know, think that you can go and climb things. And we'll get to some of the stuff you talked about last night in your, in your, uh, your show, but looking up at these giant faces, it takes a special person to think like, I'll just go up there and, and, and see what happens. So yeah. How did that happen in your mind between, you know, I would suppose being a rock climber, doing these scrambles, things like that. And then just like, boom, 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 ending up on late talk and things like that. I mean, that's a broad question, yeah. but, but, uh, but you yeah. know, think about your motivations. Well, special is probably the right word. <laughs> yeah, it definitely takes, I guess, a certain mindset or a certain characteristic. And I think the theme for the last maybe 10 years has been just a, a strong motivation, psych, whatever, just a, a real um, desire to get after it and um, go climbing. It's always been um, easy to motivate myself to go climbing in pretty much all forms. And I've always also been motivated by climbing bigger and badder things. So um, you can climb, yeah, a hard trad pitch in North Wales, but what about doing a hard multi-pitch and then going bigger and bigger and bigger? Naturally, of course, you um, will go to Scotland if you're keen on the uh, um, like winter climbing scene in the UK, which is a great testing ground. You just get hammered by totally shit weather all the time, and you you're climbing like 100 meters in a day, and it'll it'll take you like yeah 12 hours to climb three pitches, for example. So you just get absolutely blasted by the weather, and then you think, well, okay, let's do that, but bigger and bigger and bigger, and and of course you kind of go to the Alps because they're so close for UK climbers. So I guess that natural, just like having a lot of energy and uh, then going on trying bigger and bigger things, I guess, yeah, I'm kind of motivated by the difficulty as well. So right. natural to want to climb one pitch of hard stuff and then, oh, what about two and five and 10? And, and then, yeah, just continuing on and on and on to going on to bigger trips if I'm left to my own devices, I'll sleep nine till nine. So I've got like loads and loads of energy throughout the day and then uh -huh. I'll just sleep like a child. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but yeah, lots of energy during the day for sure. Nice. So uh, in this like evolution, if we want to do it, yeah, you know, sure. you're describing like a step-by-step -step thing in a lot of ways. Like, oh, I did this. Let's try this. It's a little harder. Yeah. A little harder. What do you think, uh, you know, you look back on your uh, sort of, career benchmarks you know hmm. give me some highlights in the early years when you started getting into the bigger peaks well, for like sure what, one, what sort of told you like wow this is you know this is what i really want to do for sure one of the best moments was uh climbing the walker spur on the grand Jurass in the alps so, so that was with pete graham and pete was totally relaxed throughout the whole uh three days that we, we were climbing off yeah, I think we topped out on the fourth day, something like that. He was just super controlled in the environment and, and bivvies were no big thing for him, for example. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, it was a big step up and it was, uh, you know, one of those moments where you look back and you think, oh, right, you can survive all these shit bivvies and you can survive day after day of like hard climbing, dry tooling, stuff like that. And so it was really cool to have that experience with Pete just to see how relaxed he was. And then another thing that was sort of um, cool to do was the Hal Sanderson route on Mount Alberta in the Canadian Rockies. Vince Anderson was yeah at this talk that I did in Uro last night. And that was really cool to see him there and, you know, shoot the shit a bit 
with him because climbing's cool how you've got these circles where you read about Steve House and Vince Anderson, these total wads. Oh yeah, wad, by the way. <laughs> we need to get this word in. <laughs> I was climbing with Raf Slowinski and my friend a friend of mine, Ushin, and uh Raf did did a good route and uh, we came down and and we said, Nice one, Raf, good effort, you wad. And his buddies were like, Whoa, whoa, getting all like offensive, like, did you just call Raf a Dickwad. We're just like, uh, no, no, no. In the UK, it means like good climber. Wad is like, oh, really? Well done. Yeah, like That's beast. Nice. Yeah. There's All right. Wad, Wadfather, Crispin Waddy is a, a, the name of a, a guy that maybe this thing came from. Really cool, like, good way to describe someone. Yeah, it's nice one. Uh, oh, climber, right? Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, actually, I think he did something down in Cochimo when uh, I think because he was like a world yeah. traveling first ascensionist, yeah. middle of nowhere guy yeah, yeah, back yeah. in the day. It is. I don't know if he's still around. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, okay, so a wad is good. Wad is so, good. Steve House. So you hear Vince about Anderson, yeah wads, wads. Okay, great. Total wads. <laughs> <laughs> Like you, you hear about these guys and you think, right, that's amazing. I'm never going to be able to climb something as gnarly as the north face of Mount Alberta, for mm -hmm. example. And then you kind of read a bit more about it and you climb a few more routes and you're like, oh, right, okay. Uh, maybe one day it'd be this like dream route. And then some friends do it. Like the second ascent was by Nick Bullock and Will Sim. And, and I kind of knew them um, a little bit. So suddenly to be like right well those guys did it it's possible it it suddenly becomes a bit more tangible and then for Ushjin and i to go to the canadian rockies and finally climb this thing was a really cool experience you know like completing the circle if you like hearing about this route from these guys that you really look up to and then going and climbing it um finally over two days everything going super smoothly and yeah like realizing what these grades mean and what this kind of climbing is so that's definitely another standout moment the north face of mount alberta and then i guess yeah there's tons of trad routes in the uk that i'm like very happy that i've done um like on sites of i'm not sure what the grades translate to but you know like five maybe low 513 stuff like that mm -hmm. which just take a lot of momentum a lot of good form you need to be like rock climbing all summer and then you've got these goals at the end of the summer really really cool like big pitches in pembroke so again sea cliffs things like that where you've just got to put really good gear in and just go for it relatively safe routes you know but requiring a lot of form a lot of self-belief and stuff like that but for alpine stuff yeah certainly um the two trips i've done to pakistan recently were really good fun yeah, well, let's get into those then, because that's kind of my first uh, hearing about hearing about your name. Because um, talking to Michael Kennedy uh, about the you know this Northridge the late talk thing has been uh, something that him and I have talked about quite a few mm -hmm. times. It's got this at least in the states. I don't know if it's worldwide, but it has this like big weight to it about um, the magnificent failure. It's been been dubbed where they him and uh, Let's see, Kennedy, Danini, Jeff Lowe, George Lowe uh, did this sort of capsule style alpine, kind of kind of heavy and slow, but they were they were they were out there on their own anyway. Heavy and slow compared to what we what we talk about with alpine climbing today, but it felt like this big leap to do something like that um, that was that big and that out there. So uh, that was when I first heard about you. Is you guys made basically a second ascent of it 
which it's been standing there waiting for someone to touch it for you know, <laughs> since 1978. Yeah, that's 77 right. Yeah. or 78. 78. So yeah. that was amazingly impressive what those four guys did. Yeah. And it was really cool, actually. Just, just a total name drop, but you mentioned Michael Kennedy and I kind of uh, had a coffee with him this morning and it was really, really cool just to, uh, you yeah, know, chat with well, him. Well, it made me think of what you just said about Vince and Steve. Exactly. You know, it's like yeah. full circle. Yeah. So now here you are in yeah. freaking Ure, Colorado, chatting with the man, yeah. you know? Yeah, just really one of those pinch yourself moments. Mm. Really, really cool. Michael seems like such a nice guy. Yeah. And what they did, what George Lowe, Jeff Lowe, Jim Danini and Michael Kennedy did in 1978 was very, very impressive. And you said it was a failure, but sort of that doesn't seem like quite the appropriate word because they put in such a good effort over mm. maybe 26 days and then all bailed, but safely they all came down. And that was definitely one of those moments where I suppose the, they solidified the North Ridge of Latok one as a, a grand prize, if you like, of the Karakorum. Yeah, and they were like meters from the top of the ridge. They should have got a stick clip or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just they were like, just couldn't <laughs> yeah. stick. The, there was like a V7 yeah, yeah, like, boulder yeah. problem. They were just, just working it. Yeah. 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 No, but they, I mean, they, according, because I just talked to George Lowe too, it was, you know, a few pitches. And, yeah, it and sounds then, like they were close. But that wasn't the top of the mountain, as, no. yeah, as we'll get into. But um, yeah. he, uh, yeah, and then Jeff Lowe, just to put it in perspective, Jeff Lowe was getting really sick and they basically decided that either he, you know, they could keep going at the risk of his maybe eventual death if they didn't go down. And that was like the decision to start lo start getting lower for, for yeah. Jeff's health. So anyway, just to put it in perspective of what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, since then, it's been tried by dozens of really strong teams. And I guess, um, so in 2018, Alej Cezan and Lukas Straza, two good friends of mine from Slovenia, and I, we just got very lucky when we mm -hmm. went to the Karakorum. I think a lot of stars have to align on these sorts of routes. Right. And most of the time, or some of the time, it doesn't work out in the big mountains, but that's just the way it goes. Um, we definitely wanted to climb the mountain by the fastest, easiest, most logical way since it's never been climbed or it hadn't been climbed from the north side. So what we did was kind of go three quarters of the way up the north ridge and then traverse round, skip out the crux, if in doubt, just traverse off route. And so we went round to the south side and then topped out, topped out there and then reversed the route and came back down so it was just a cool seven day round trip again one of those standout moments for sure mm -hmm. i mean is there any evidence of that ascent when you get up onto that route of the americans yeah there were two wires which we suspected were from brits and uh that's all the only evidence we found on the route so um it was pretty cool that there was nothing else there there were no tracks or no bivy platforms cut from other teams or fixed gear when we came back down on the seventh day we went directly down this rocky ridge at the start and that was a bit of a shame because loads and loads of teams had tried that and there was shit everywhere there was loads and loads of fixed gear and like loads of anchors that just kept throwing you off so all we wanted to do was be down on mm -hmm. this seventh day we're just totally wasted but all these anchors were like throwing you off down the wrong ways and then you'd have to do like a 30 meter wrap then down climb a bit and then a 60 meter wrap and then down climb a bit so it's just constantly like making things hard for ourselves um but 
just to finally get down yeah at the end was pretty special and what did the climbing what was the climbing like on the I was, way up? yeah i was really pleased because it was like constantly engaging the whole way there was no just like boring snow slopes it was a lot of like relatively technical ground the whole way a couple of little bulges of like little steeper sections where it was much easier without a pack plenty of good climbing um what i enjoy most is technical climbing and so if you can try and get these decent rock climbs or mixed climbs but put them at high altitude that's that's what it's all about for sure well that seems like uh an evolution in a way that's i mean it's ongoing but it's it's also something that's been talked about for a long time i feel like like you know well let's say this like mixed climbing appeared as its own you know this weird little sport like the sport climbing style kind of mixed climbing of you know upside down figure fours and and uh you know, I always felt like there was such this, that was a, such this divergence in, you know, even though you're using ice tools and crampons and things like it, it yeah. was a divergence from, you know, pure ice climbing and then mixed climbing in the mountains. But, you know, I feel like maybe that those super hyper technical things have started to creep in. I mean, nobody that I know is doing a figure four. Like, no, I mean, doesn't yet. I've never done a figure yet. four yet. Right, right. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but, you know, like it, it is sort of the, the the hard technical end of this mixed climbing is creeping into the big mountains. Yeah, I mean that's little. I mean that's it's amazing to be cragging and then be able to throw hard moves or be able to um try hard moves and if you can then yeah, take that technical standard and then push it higher and higher. Mm-hmm. I mean people have been doing it in the Alps for years and years and people have been climbing technical routes in in the big mountains for a while but yeah to keep pushing those standards up is is uh yeah it's interesting it's good fun what was the reaction uh you know i know that you know it got notoriety climbing uh the north side of late talk uh what was the reaction and do you, did you feel like in the in the greater climbing community to your uh to the ascent hmm i don't know um i guess a few friends said well done so <laughs> that's all that matters there was yeah. no parades or accolades or like uh, uh, i don't climb for that yeah, yeah not not yeah. in the slightest bit interested right, right. that. no yeah maybe there was uh yeah i'm still waiting for the fans and the ferraris to roll in oh that's cool yeah i'm sure they're on their way but um yeah and then what did michael have to say michael i think was very complimentary and we exchanged a few emails and uh it was interesting to hear someone say the other day i think Julie, his wife, said last night that maybe it brought some closure for him. But I guess the full Northridge still remains. I mean, it's there for anyone that wants it. All right. Well, let's move up to this other thing that you, that we, we saw um, last night, which actually, you know, as a segue, I think one of the things you pointed out in this climb, and you could tell us about the names and stuff like that in a sec, but uh, of, of how you kind of did really push the weird technical standards up on this high rock and actually like i thought it sort of was a blow the audience away moment when you started talking about rock shoes and and uh and like doing 512 moves uh on on rock at however many feet i don't know how high you guys were at that point but yeah i'm not sure of the currency but yes yeah. 6200 meters or right something right like right yeah, yeah so talk about that because that you talked about late talk but this seemed to be how ha- have captured your imagination uh, maybe equally or, or more this other ascent. Yeah. So 
a few months ago, um, I went to Pakistan again with five, with four good friends. Um, so it was uh, Will Sim, Alice Winton, John Crook, and Ushan Hawthorne, um, five Brits. And it was really cool to go um, on a trip like that. Loads of um, exploring into new areas, into the Hindu Raj, which is right in the north of, the, of Pakistan, right on the Afghanistan border. Like one side is Pakistan and the other side of the valley is... Uh, afghanistan and wilson really like initiated this trip and sort of did some research and we went to check out a mountain called koyozom which is like six thousand eight hundred and something meters it's it's quite high and um the most attractive line and face on this thing was like a big matterhorn you know like toblerone perfect triangle of uh snow and ice but then the top half looked like really really good rock climbing sort of kind of golden granite the sun would come around right in the evening and then just like shine this wall um so it looked really really cool but it also looked very hard and there was a lot of doubts about whether it would go um and then had this mountain seen a lot of uh attention because it's like the pictures i mean it's an it's an awesome looking peak like in mm. in in terms of modern alpinism i think what you know, modern alpinists like yourself look for in, in a big mountain. It looks like, I mean, like a postcard for that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it had it seen cool. a, had it seen attention otherwise, climbing wise? No, I think the Hindu Raj had been off the radar oh, for okay. a while. Um, it's been climbed twice from the the like easier east side in the seventy or sixties, and then seventies. Also. Um, much less traffic in the last 10 years to this area of Pakistan because you have to drive right next to the Afghanistan border. And we went down the valley, the Swat Valley, which I think is where Osama bin Laden was captured or lived or something like that. So for good reasons, people haven't been going there for a while. Right. Yeah, I've heard of the Swat in terms of, yeah. in terms of all that. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of uh, funny. We were like thinking we were all really cool and like cruising around in this Jeep driving through... Um, the Swat Valley, and we're like, yeah, really cool. But actually, everyone was super friendly, and there was no hostility at all in in six or seven weeks of Pakistan of traveling around Pakistan. So that was cool. Yeah, and they're not. I mean, if you're coming in there and it hasn't seen a lot of action, then you know, like climbers going into the Baltaro and all that sort of stuff is super well known. It's all got this big infrastructure that's around like supporting these climbers and making money off of that and everything mm. else. Was it was it like kind of alien zone being down in this this area as climbers? I don't think it's received much um attention. I think there are occasional trekkers and stuff like that okay. that go into the region in the last year or two. And actually a French team were there in the spring, which we were really surprised about. We'd, we kind of thought, oh, great, this this area that nobody's been to for ages, really cool. And then some French dudes just were like, oh, yeah, we've just come back from there. And we're like, oh, huh, maybe it's not so wild right. after all. But, yeah, it was great to go with these guys and, and to finally see Koyozom, this mountain that we've been thinking about for months because, yeah, you don't really know what it's going to look like. We had a fairly decent photo from, from someone. So we had a good idea of where we might want to climb, but still it was really cool just to quest into the wilds of pakistan as you say off the beaten track from the main areas that people go alpine climbing and so what uh what does your expedition look like just the four of you carrying everything are you using porters there's so five of us and we oh, um, five sorry yeah yeah we drove um for a couple of days up these like 
um, four by four tracks and uh, finally kind of like stopped the car and looked across the valley and there's Koya's arm. So it was pretty roadside in terms of approach, <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> really like good. Rifle. So yeah, like, exactly. You know, like car start climbing. Just yeah. like rifle. Yeah, yeah, if you could belay in the car, that'd yeah. be even better. Yeah. Yeah. We like asked some locals and... Um, they carried our stuff up for like a couple of hours so that we could get as close as we could to getting a good base camp. It's kind of funny that um, in these really, really remote valleys with no phones and like everyone's living from subsistence farming, we're like, well, how are we going to find 20 locals to help us carry our junk the next morning? And our kind of fixer guy um, was just like, yeah, everyone will know. Everyone will know. People have been like, the word has been funneling up the valley before we even came into this place that some gringos were arriving and the, there's there's some work to be had. So lo and behold, first thing in the morning, there's like donkeys and loads of local guys who are just like picking up our bags and start walking up the hill. Wow. And we're just like, all oh, right, <laughs> everything's sorted already. Yeah. But we basically felt really kind of nervous about putting our tents up in this nice little flat meadow with good views of the mountain. But there were little like stone huts from shepherds that were up there for the summer season, you know, like seasoners. So we were thinking, oh, this might be a bit rude. This might be a bit insensitive. But the local fixer guys were just like, yeah, no, it's all good. We'll just like stick our tents in the in these guys' front garden. And right. These little kids have come out and they've never seen a white person before and they're running around and initially a bit shy and the women are all in their like traditional dresses and things so yeah it was really cool from that perspective as well these trips are often um as much about the places you're going through and the good mates that you're going with and of course like five brits we're all just like total gringos and um nothing's taken very seriously it's all just a good laugh it's pretty cruisy yeah so then you guys have to do like days and days of acclimatizing which is like moving and then just chilling right yeah acclimatizing kind of sucks you just basically got a big headache for like three or four days so that's like the worst part about um alpine climbing and uh in this instance it was nice to have five five of us there we could just like banter backwards and forwards and um check out the mountain from uh, a bit closer like play loads of chess and just generally yeah hang out Listen to techno. Oh, there's a lot of techno, for sure. <laughs> so Ustjan likes techno bagpipes, which still I can't get used to, even though I've been on, like, for, I don't know, countless trips with him. He's got this weird, like, dance techno bagpipe. Is he Scottish? He's, oh, he's Scottish. Oh, right. Yeah, he's Scottish. That's okay, why he's right. got this crazy name. Ustjan. Ustjan. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, it's written, like, Usdeen. Usdeen? Usdeen. But imagine you're Scottish and you're saying, Eh, hey, you, Ustjan. <laughs> get to fuck <laughs> <laughs> the accents man coming yeah, up i've got here. terrible accents but i do like the sound of like accents and stuff right yeah I, I can't play like a musical instrument to save my life but yeah i quite like you like the musicality of accents yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah right and on. same with techno if it's like a really good like rhythm or really good pumping beat and yeah it's cool <laughs> i just always i mean it's like the brits and the euros too have freaking love the techno like love yeah. it yeah it's yeah like money but uh <laughs> so okay so let's get back to the uh to approaching the mountain and then deciding what to climb you were talking uh we got a little off track from that but we were talking about how you had this sort of line that that um had some audacity to it in terms of a question mark of 
getting through what was a very steep yeah. looking rock way up high. Yeah. And of course, being five of us, it probably wouldn't be practical to climb as a team of five. So we were kind of all just very open to the idea of climbing whatever we could. Sometimes on these trips, like I went to India shortly after one Pakistan trip and we just sat in a tent for like four weeks with really bad weather. So sometimes you can just uh, get really unlucky with the weather or illnesses. And on this trip, unfortunately, so on, on the recent Pakistan trip, there was a bit of illness. We all had a bit of weird stomachs and things, but Will and Ushjan kind of got a bit sick for a few days. And so they uh, kind of missed out on some acclimatization. And basically when it came to us trying to... Um, all sit down and say right well we're all kind of ready we've got maybe 10 days left on this trip so now's the time to go climbing uh will ushjan and john they all said they were keen for more of this uh left-hand line of coils on which looked a little bit easier there's potential for them to acclimatize whilst they're on the route so ali and i were obviously psyched for this uh right-hand line even though we didn't know if it would go. Yeah, there was a big question mark about it, but we thought we've come all this way and so we might as well give it a go. So yeah, there was that usual faff of like just gear strewn everywhere and we're like, shall I take these pairs of socks or these pairs of socks? And it's like, oh, this one's lighter and this one's better. and oh. So it just goes on for like a whole day, but by the end of it, Ali and I had two giant rucksacks. Sorry, backpacks. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's just the first taste of your american accent oh right yeah there, there you go <laughs> yeah right on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so ali and i were basically uh psyched and we thought we'd give this thing a go and uh so we did and that's it there's nothing really to talk about on the climb no. yeah yeah just like no little crimp here under cling there yeah side pull there yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and then you get kind of pumped and out of breath because right. you're at altitude yeah. and you sit on a cam. <laughs> no, I'm not letting you off the hook. So if if I recall, you climbed up really gigantic snow, steep, really steep snow with your backpacks on. Yeah, first yep. day. Yeah. yeah, get that boring stuff out of the way. And then from then on, it was basically um, the business for a couple of days. We had, I don't know, like 500 or 600 meters of this um big rock headwall there were some really cool like mixed climbing corners dihedrals and uh gullies and things like that that we were going through so that you could like dry tool with your with your axes hooking them over like glued in flakes and like with your with your hands you could like hang on to these big spikes and stuff and kick your crampons into snow and ice so really cool climbing and thankfully um we could tag the bags up so that we weren't climbing with packs because it's kind of sucks to be climbing with heavy packs as as i'm sure you know and uh i think day two getting a really cool classical like bivy platform just this little snow ridge just about wide enough for the tent and then day three questing through this headwall which we just thought well shit this belongs in north wales on the sea cliffs it's really really wild really exposed i could see kind of a, a way through and full credit to ali he was like yeah let's just keep having a look um see what see what we can see and i was kind of in inside i was a bit dubious that this thing would go but luckily the sun was kind of coming round onto the uh face and so it was a tiny bit warmer in the afternoon and uh, i had some rock shoes um ali didn't bring his good call so 
<laughs> so I was like, okay, I guess I'll give it a go. I remember saying to like Ali, I think he's been to the States a bit and done some big walling or aid climbing. And I was like, have you got any advice for how to aid climb? Sat at the, underneath this like giant head wall being like, oh, aid climbing 101. Okay, here we go. And uh, yeah, so basically a couple of pitches later, we managed to find this really kind of faint weakness going through this giant overhanging head wall. It was really cool that you could, um, yeah, put relatively good gear in this nice like golden granite, sit on it every now and again because you've got a big headache. But yeah, trying to do decent free moves. And uh, anytime you got a loose rock, I could like wiggle it out. And I quite enjoy like just trundling and stuff like that. So wiggling out a rock and chucking it over your shoulder and it would just free fall all the way down. And you could kind of bridge out um, so that you could get your hands off and like get hands off rest, but have this really wild exposure just thinking, shit, we're up. 6,200 meters we're in the middle of nowhere in Pakistan it's just the two of us but yeah we're uh we're, we're questing right and you're like no ha- or, uh, no gloves yeah like yeah rock fully shoes, bare hands like rock shoes rock climbing yeah fully rock climbing yeah it was really really good fun I, I mean I don't know about the grade and stuff like that but yeah I was like pretty pumped and uh stuff like that by the end of a couple of pitches yeah I mean it's it's it kind of it was like for me, it was a, a point in, in your presentation where I was just like, kind of like, what the fuck is going on? Like, <laughs> because, I mean, the fact that you had rock shoes at all seems like a bit of a, uh, I don't know, either some optimism, but also, I don't, it, that's not, I just don't know that to be like standard gear. In no, pack no. For a, yeah. For a, a, I mean, that you even had them on the, the whole trip. Well, like, there's some decent base camp bouldering oh, to right. be had for sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't want to lose all the fitness. Yeah, when you so go I guess away. that's yeah. I guess that is kind of that part's a little bit standard for some of these trips. Is yeah, but to throw them in the pack when you're like, you know, trying to cut down to like just the right amount of goose, yeah. and whether one yeah. pair of socks heavier than the other, and then I'll just throw these rock shoes in here. It's kind of wild. Well, I guess it's a combination of things. The first is always be optimistic. Right. And I guess, yeah, that's part of my personality, perhaps, just to be, like, yeah, psyched and optimistic. And the second thing is to uh, the, is because we were looking at this giant head wall for a week whilst acclimatizing. And we were like, well, that looks really, really steep rock climbing if there's anything that's going to stop us, it's probably that. Mm-hmm. But if there's one thing that allows us to go through this thing, it's going to be rock shoes and a and a decent rack. So that's why we had a set and a half or maybe even a double set of cams, which is a huge amount to take on an alpine route. Yeah, a set of wires and pins and things like that. So, yeah, we kind of knew that we were up for a fight and we wanted to stack the odds in our favor as much as we could sure. but you're right yeah it was it was a bit wacky to be packing rock shoes and thinking well shit am i gonna like try and do some bare hands emergency crimping and just get frostbite on yeah my yeah exactly yeah i mean and you had the nice uh i mean those moments in the sun but you couldn't climb in the shade like that no no it was really really cold in the right. shade yeah so we were wearing like big down jacket and um synthetic pants whilst uh seconding a block in the shade for example right yeah really cold nice to have the sun come around i mean that's one of those kind of lucky things if it if it had just been like slightly more north facing and it didn't really get much sun then yeah well, i guess we would have had to have just aided through that section but it might have taken like 
an extra day or two, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. And then uh, your partner was following. You guys weren't following with Jumars. He was following it. No, I've in never his, like, like Jumars in the mountains and in his uh, in his mountain boots. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Ali pulled led. like fully double duty because right. he was seconding these pitches in his big boots and crampons plus. He had my big boots and crampons like swinging off the back of his harness as well. So yeah, good effort from Ali there. Nice. And so you guys topped it out. Yeah, yeah. On day five, we got to the top. Um, really. And you're getting, uh, are you getting weather? Well, I mean, getting weather, weather reports. Weather event. Um, that's something that you guys say. It's like, there's been a wind event. <laughs> We're just like, what? <laughs> it's windy. <laughs> there's been a weather event. Yeah, we are. We've got a little um, Garmin inReach Mini, right. so we can get texts okay, every now cool. and again right. just to say the weather's looking good okay. on the go. Yeah, amazing to get to the top on like really, really um, clear day. You can see Tajikistan, China. You're in Pakistan. You can see Afghanistan. It's the highest Ali's ever been. It's my, f- it's our f- his first trip to the this area as well. So yeah, really, really cool to like be on top of this thing i was hoping for some sort of euro all five of us um so the other guys had come up the other side ideally and then we'd all like five way high five and then we just walked down but yeah unfortunately will ustian and john um they found the route to be way harder than expected and so they were also feeling the altitude as well so they bailed but yeah cool for ali and us to uh, get to the top and then cruise down the easier east side and just like slump onto the glacier um and the evening of day five i think it was and we knew all we had to do was just walk down to base camp it was like drop two thousand meters of altitude and it would be a pretty gnarly glacier but basically all the technical climbing was done so yeah it felt good to get there and then <laughs> <laughs> And then the next, then you day, got a little overconfident, and like, oh, we'll be down in a little while. Well, yeah, yeah, I don't think we were overconfident on the, I guess, the sixth morning, um, because we started walking down. We were roped up. Um, we were super hungry and kind of running lower on food and um, gas and stuff like that. So it was, yeah, pretty gnarly to weave through these crevasses and things. Um, I'm pretty terrified of these things anyway. You know, like when you can see the snow and it just has kind of sagged a bit in the heat of the day. And so you think, well, it's it's probably a a snow bridge over a giant crevasse and you're just terrified, like crawling across these things. Really grim experiences. And I think with with, uh, crevasses and like walking on glaciers, it's not very enjoyable um, in anyway but a friend has got a good theory where you like get more and more confident and more more and more like blase about this uh like just like walking over crevasses and things like that and you might like step a foot in every now and again and you're like whoa a bit scared but generally you get more and more confident and then you like fall in one and you're like whoa you get terrified again and from from that moment you're like really really nervous and tiptoeing around again and then you do a few more days worth of walking on them and you get more and more confident again and on it goes um, but yeah, so Ali was very unlucky to basically fall in a crevasse and um, he kind of rattled down a bit and hit his head and, and his leg on the way down. And uh, I was able to stop him with the rope and uh, set up a little pulley system, a crevasse rescue and, and pull him out. 
And for some reason, I thought he'd be totally fine. And we'd just like carry on walking down. But Ali had put his helmet on um, in the crevasse because there were all these terrifying like stalactites, icicles of uh, like hanging down. And uh, then he got his helmet and like threw it onto the snow as as he popped up and it like broke in th- or it, it had broken into three pieces so yeah i was immediately like oh shit this is not good and it turned out he had a big cut in his head um so there was quite a lot of blood there i couldn't really see how bad the cut was but i figured like a head injury is not a good thing anyway and uh, i was a bit worried about um internal bleeding on his leg it seemed to just be bruised and something like that but no bones sticking out or anything like that so it's all it's all okay but basically we knew that even if we could wait for a couple of days we'd then have to get down to base camp and then Ali probably still needed to go to a hospital quite quickly um the fact that he couldn't walk meant that perhaps we could like hobble or drag him or something like that but still then if I fell in a crevasse or he fell in another crevasse that would just kind of be a bad idea so I was kind of aware of the situation, um, the fact that we're in a remote region in Pakistan, perhaps we're, or hopefully we're going to get rescued. We're kind of at 5,900 meters and they can't re- the helicopters can't really fly much higher than that. And Ali seemed to be a tough, well, Ali is a tough guy and he's got a tough head. So we was really lucky that it wasn't worse. I got our little Garmin inReach thing out and and pressed the SOS button because I've been always wondering what happens when you press this. And I was thinking like, yeah, international rescue. Here we come. This is going to be great. And I pressed it and nothing happened. It was just like a message came through that said, are you sure? And I was like, yes, definitely sure. We definitely want a rescue. And unfortunately, the helicopters, because they were miles away, they couldn't come and get us. So in the first evening it was uh, suddenly like kind of getting cold and getting dark and um i think ali got really cold and perhaps his kind of condition was deteriorating a bit so that was a bit scary because yeah it felt pretty intense just to make sure he was okay i'm sure he would have done everything that i did just to try and look after him and make sure he was he was all right um but thankfully yeah it was it was a long night and it was pretty intense, but thankfully by the early hours of the morning, his condition had improved quite a lot. And we sort of sat in the tent waiting for the sound of these helicopters to come and get us, which was, yeah, again, quite a long wait. But yeah, Ali, by the by the end of it was, or sort of by the second afternoon, was um, generally like in, on good form mentally. It was totally all there and stuff. So we felt like we just had the a strange juxtaposition because we'd climbed this amazing route, we'd quested up this wall that we didn't really know if it would go. It felt like it was just Ali and I on on and the only people in the world. It was really, really cool to get to the top and then to have this rescue and the accident. Yeah, a real juxtaposition between the two experiences. And finally, the helicopters came, and um, Ali jumped in one, and and uh, then they flew off, and I sat on our bags, and I was like, "Huh, I hope the helicopters are coming back." <laughs> Thankfully, they they cruise back, and there's there's always two of them, and for some reason, um, well, I said, "Well, why why do you have two? And he says, "The pilot said, 
well, if one helicopter crashes, a second helicopter can rescue first helicopter. <laughs> you think, oh, great, very confidence-inspiring. But yeah, Ali got stitched up in a um, Pakistani hospital. It was it's pretty entertaining that there's like kind of the power going off and there's a guy with his phone putting the light on and then playing music and stuff like that. And the, the doctors are like stitching up the big cut in his head. So real, again surreal experience to be in the mountains for so long just the two of you totally relying on each other and and uh yeah like basically no more than 60 meters apart for six or seven days and then suddenly to be back in civilization stinking because you're wearing your mountain clothes you've been helicoptered all the way onto the other side of the, the range so we didn't know where or what was going on with the other the other guys and our like base camp team did they know that you you had been rescued yeah so we okay. were able to communicate in oh, a really, right, in like, the lengthy way yeah. yeah via the inreach yeah but we were all just like right scattered all over the place sure the other guys had had been in in one helicopter to try and rescue us but the the helicopter wasn't like a high altitude one so they'd gone back to an army base ustjan was left in base camp so we were all just like thrown to the far corners of of this range and then finally getting back together again in islamabad yeah it was pretty surreal right and they they, they got all your stuff out and the whole thing cleaned it up yeah cool. yeah 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 i mean it it's a an interesting perspective like you said to just suddenly be alone in the world and then all of a sudden you know yeah the sort yeah. of the the swarm sort yeah, of yeah real in. culture shock yeah. yeah yeah and it was a bit unpleasant as well with the news we were getting hassled a lot for trying to give a story and still just the other day actually i had an email from like the bbc saying can we make a program about this and i just not that interested in in that so it was yeah a bit annoying as well to get like hassled with all these weird news reports that people would just publish anyway um in the papers or online that was basically completely factually incorrect and for us all just to be like well, I was getting calls from the press and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, I guess bad news is stuff that sells. Yeah, right. Yeah. So this was just when? Just last year? Yeah, this was um, September and October. Oh, just 2019. recently. So yeah. a few, few months ago. Yeah. And um, I mean, so you get back to to home. As far as just the, you know, the post kind of uh, analysis, not even analysis, but reflection, you know, do you think it, it changed anything for you the way you look at, at the mountains or how you're climbing or having this, uh, you know, I mean, it, it ended up not being necessarily a totally near death experience, but in the moment you thought it probably was well for, for your partner anyway. Yeah. I, I was chatting with again, Michael Kennedy after this, and he was saying that you might process these sorts of things for weeks or months or even years afterwards. Um, I think I have renewed my fear of glaciers and crevasses. <laughs> You're back up on the <laughs> yeah, top of that scale. Yeah, terrified again. Right. <laughs> and I think I should wear a helmet when I'm walking on the glacier. We should all wear helmets when I'm walking on the glacier. I don't think we relaxed on the descent. Obviously, you know, people say the descent is one of the most dangerous parts and i don't think we were too relaxed well it sounds like the like system that. worked yeah you're able to get him out of the out of the crevasse like yeah. just the way the books tell you that yeah you know? yeah good thing i youtube that like right. 10 years ago right. <laughs> for a second i was like 
huh right <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's that's pretty normal in like backcountry skiing a lot of things where you learn it sort of and then you know it yeah can be years a lot of people go a long time without like doing beacon drills yeah. and stuff yeah or, but yeah yeah so i guess this really i think that's it you yeah. know with gla glacier travel i know a lot of yeah. people that don't necessarily yeah. keep it sharp yeah it's reiterated the fact that i should really practice like uh first aid and avalanche rescue and um learning more about snow conditions things like that because yeah when you need to use it you've got to know what to do another thing that's interesting is the the scale of the rescue because we didn't fully appreciate the number of people involved from like uk foreign office to global rescue insurance people the pakistani consulate and embassies and things like that so this huge amount of people were involved and it was just crazy to be in this weird hospital in the middle of pakistan ali was just getting stitched up and then the phone rings in the hospital and the guy's like oh it's for you and it was some sort of uh, global rescue either the insurers or um like the uk foreign office that was kind of helping organize these things so it's just bizarre how this phone can ring in the hospital and they're right. like let me speak to the gringo and right. like, all right yeah, yeah there he is yeah we're they're over there and same with um, ta a taxi driver we took this massive taxi from gilgit to islamabad and uh suddenly the taxi driver's phone rings and he's like oh yeah ali it's for you again this is like a day or two later it's just just bonkers how people can track each other down the agent had booked this taxi guy and so the agent had his number yeah amazing what you can do with technology these days right well i mean and it's like uh i think it's been a discussion you know in the last i don't know probably decade or or more or maybe it's always been this discussion about you know how things change in the mountains with technology you know like the weather report thing is you know i just i've talked to danini and and a lot of these folks that are just like yeah the it's just so much different now when you have have like weather and technology have you ever been one of these people that you know is sort of a bit of a luddite about those intrusions uh into into the mountaineering experience which is something that i've no i mean even even our our uh our friend hayden you know he he kind of was ambivalent about yeah the the purity of it all um yeah. is that something that can that you think about it all or is it just this is modern mountaineering and you know, I feel like it almost in this day and age is uh, almost negligent to not be prepared when it's that easy to have it all with you. Yeah, there's some interesting points. I guess, firstly, it must have been really wild to have quested into the mountains in the 70s, 80s, 90s without communications or weather reports. So that's it's pretty impressive and i guess a lot of the time people just suffer through the weather i guess that's why they often climbed in that sort of more reserved style like sort of siege style or well, that or was totally style. the the concept on on uh on yeah. in the 78 or 77 78 yeah they talk is that yeah. we'll go up here with enough stuff to sit through the weather exactly yeah, yeah. because they didn't have information that could right. could uh um help them out so it must have been cool to um be away from things as well nowadays it's yes as you say almost negligent not to take some sort of communication device and there was a really cool interview with rolo garabotti he was saying yeah in patagonia now if you don't take some sort of communication device you're you're 
basically making things really hard for yourself and everyone else if you get into trouble. And previously, I've generally enjoyed being in the mountains to get away from all these things, and, and I still do. I don't often take a phone with me when I go climbing, if it's like multi-pitch climbing or cragging, if I go for a run or you know, a big hike in the mountains for a day or two, I will occasion will, will very rarely take my phone um, or any form of communication device because I like to be outside and not be looking at my phone all the time. So it is a tricky thing to, to weigh up. I basically think if it's relatively unserious situation or unserious consequences, I will be the first person not to take a phone or a communica- communication device. I'll probably take a camera, for example, but that's that's about it. That that'll be for pictures. And on big routes, yeah, you do really want a forecast, and you do really want a form of communication, just in case something happens. And like you say, you kind of be negligent not to take it. Well, my perspective is that they're going to come look for you. You, it's not like you could you could in any way, shape, or form, you know, sign an agreement that. If I disappear in the mountains, leave me there, you know, and to yeah. me in the ice. And so it's like, if if you don't have a way in which to make it easier for them, them being this like army of people that ended up dealing with your mm. rescue, yeah. you're risking, they're going to come one way or the other. And the more easy you make, you make it for them, the less risk it is for yeah. them. And that's kind of what I see as the sort of like, it's great. And yeah, you want to go up there and have this mountain experience, but... I feel like, you know, your people at home are going to be wondering where you are. So you're putting all these mm. people outside of your yeah. experience through something that yeah. in some ways could be very dangerous because suddenly the, maybe the rescue gets really weird because they don't exactly know where you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's all if you didn't sorts come back, they're going to come look. Yeah, there's all you know? sorts of ways that it yeah. can play out. But if you don't have, a, have something, um, you are, yeah, leaving it a lot more to chance, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Ali has recovered. Yeah, yeah. Good. Very lucky and very glad it's all ended well in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, and he's he's still psyched. Yeah, I think Ali's a strong guy. And uh, yeah, like I said, he's got a tough head. So I think it's all good. Yeah, so do you imagine a reunion uh, in the mountains with this crew? Yeah, for sure. It'd be really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be good to go climbing with those guys again. In uh, February and March, I'm going to go to the Alps and Ali and Will and John will be there. So yeah, I'll definitely hang out with them. And then in April... I'm hoping to go to Alaska with Ushin or planning to go to Alaska with Ushin. Right. AKA Steve. AKA Steve. Yeah. <laughs> so the story of Steve, which is really good, is that uh, we go through all these little checkpoints um, and you have to give your passport. This is in India and, and in Pakistan on, on trips that I've been with him. And they give the passports back at the end. They sort of copy them all out. It feels like a very strange exercise. Some guys like writing out your passport number, not even just scanning it or anything. And it's like, here's, here's your passport back, Tom. And then here's your passport back, Will. And, and then he, he gets to Ustjan and it's just like a scramble of letters. Use Dean. And uh, he kind of goes, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> and from that moment on, we're yeah. like, yeah, brilliant. He's Steve, Steve for forever Steve. now, yeah, I think. Yeah. For sure. Awesome. And then they probably, yeah, they're probably down with Ali too, right? They yeah. were really yeah. psyched. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. obviously it's a very common name in uh, Pakistan. So they say, Ali, are you Muslim? And he says, no, I'm from uh, Scotland. Oh, can I have a visa? <laughs> <laughs> really cool. It's good to put things in perspective on these trips right. because you realize how lucky we are to live 
in the UK or America, for example, we've got everything pretty well sorted in the grand scheme of things. And certainly traveling to these countries makes you appreciate, yeah, how lucky we are in life. Let me ask you one last question uh, about, I guess it's kind of related to the story you just told and um, kind of risk. There's been a bit, at least uh, within alpinism circles in the U.S. recently about sort of risk reward, um, you know, with sort of quite a few tragedies in the last couple of years um, in terms of pushing this sort of light and fast thing um, and just pushing pushing levels in the mountains we're we're we were kind of talking about it throughout this show that's something that you enjoy doing you know like challenging mm-hmm. yourself again and again a little bit more a little bit more is something that's interesting to you but uh you're you're super optimistic you know like you just said you're super motivated you're super hard charger and sometimes it's easy to not reflect on those things and depends on your personality as well but in terms of the scheme of like light fast like this kind of super alpinism does do you have a perspective on whether we're talking about odds or are we talking about just the normal scheme of things with accidents happening in the mountains or is there is there like a push that may be getting people into trouble more so than they they ought to be that's a really interesting and and perhaps a deeper question you could say that the climbers certainly british climbers in the 1990s they called themselves the generation that nearly climbed themselves into extinction oh right and they were pushing really really high standards perhaps it was the 80s and 90s actually pushing these standards going lighter and faster on these bigger mountains 8000 meter mountains around the world and uh pioneering styles like night naked so they were climbing throughout the night um, and then resting in the heat of the day and climbing amazing things in in 48 hours for example Mm -hmm. so amazing things have always been done and standards have always been pushed and you could argue that some of the things that people did in the 80s and 90s have have not been pushed further in today's standards you could also say that uh People have been having accidents, unfortunately, in the mountains for a long time. We perhaps have had a recent really bad few years with friends in the mount- friends dying in the mountains. And yet you can you can talk a lot about this and it, and it can get quite deep because you could say perhaps it's just a question of odds and eventually you're just going to get unlucky in the mountains. It's an environment that in, is inherently complete chaos and it's tumbling out of control. And you'd be foolish to think that you can do anything to control it. Um, rocks can fall, storms can come out of nowhere, things like that. But I guess people will always climb in the mountains because of the things we enjoy about it, that is the views or the bants, all that sort of stuff. There's no good answer to like, why, why do people climb? I think I will always... Oh, I hope to always enjoy climbing in the mountains. And I know that you can't keep pushing these sorts of things. You have to hit a, a personal ceiling at some point. But I enjoy these sorts of activities. So I will keep doing them for as long as I enjoy them. Have you ever felt like, uh, have you better been in a situation where you were like, uh oh, this is maybe one step too far? Yeah, once or twice with these sorts of things 
you try and avoid those situations of course and, and i try and try and stack the odds in your favor or be super conservative um but no ultimately when you're pushing these things yeah you think shit don't fall off here <laughs> i guess that's a good philosophy and a good place yeah. to end the podcast sure yeah yeah you can't fall off if you don't let go yeah exactly <laughs> right on uh well cool well good luck and um i look forward to uh, finding out what the next uh the big things that you get done are and i appreciate you getting in touch and coming on the podcast well thanks very much it's been great right on <laughs> All right, folks, thanks for checking this one out. And thanks to Tom for sitting down. Right wad, that guy. Actually, I don't know if he's a wad or not. I don't think you get to be a wad until the climate community gets together and votes on it. You can't declare yourself a wad. Wadness does not come from looking in the mirror and just agreeing with yourself. I don't think wadness comes from inside. It comes from out. It's bestowed upon you. Anyway, good luck pursuing waddom. Tom. All right, can you, can you guys hear that dog barking? Is it coming through? Jesus. Do dogs bark in the UK? Do they have barking dogs there? I bet your dogs just look over their teacup with quiet looks of stoic disdain and don't bark at all. Paradise. All right, I'm getting too far out on this limb. Uh, folks, remember, if you want to help out the podcast, if you dig what I do and want to help sustain Go ahead and check out the help out page over at enormacast.com. A bunch of things you can do to help out the podcast, including donate some money to the cause from what are probably dwindling funds of your own. <laughs> yeah, maybe not the best time to beg for money, right? But if you can spare something, that'd be awfully sweet of you to give me a buck or two. And the shop is down. The shop is down. The shop was like slowing my website down so much and I couldn't figure out how to deal with it and didn't have the time and I don't make much off of it anyway. Plus, I was running out of merchandise. So maybe as this thing opens back up and I can get some t-shirts or something to restock, I'll start the shop back up. I do have uh, a few things. Uh, so if you're looking for a gift for somebody or something, just email me and maybe we can come up with a deal. Koozies anyway. So most places have a bit of a yellow light to go climbing. A lot of places do. Maybe not the parks, but uh, local crags and things. There are recommendations from the AAC, from the Access Fund, about how to do that in a proper COVID-19 world. There are some concessions that you need to make as far as being around other people and climbing on the same things and crowding crags. So check those out. And if you do get out there, remember to respect one another, respect each other's space, what we're trying to get done here with keeping this virus at bay. And of course, remember to check your knot. head kind of hurts yeah, yeah. i like that too um <laughs> I need to put some sunglasses on even though we're inside there you go oh this is good yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh dear we should do a half-time break posh, the posh.
coming out right there. Um, hey, you were talking about Spice Girls last yeah, night. That, well, that's because well that that actually was because that was going to be my question, but then Sam Simon blew it and stole it from me. That was going to be for, my opener for today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because just because mm. of the, the the Randall thing. So. Oh yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> this is all that Americans think of. <laughs> think of Brits. You've got the Queen. You've got the Spice yeah. Girls. Queen, Spice uh, Girls, uh, football. Yeah, football hooligans. Yeah, yeah, lads, yeah. lads, lads. Yeah, totally. So, <laughs> um, all right, what the hell? <laughs>